This is a, a very interesting story. Uh, I, I love these uh, rather obscure stories in Scripture that we don't often read and we don't often hear. And there are many applications that we can make. Uh, many people today would, would uh, substitute themselves for many instances in the story. You, you'd see many, for instance, uh, the story of David and Goliath. And uh, you just need to defeat your Goliath. And uh, the only thing that they get wrong with that application is you're not David. And uh, you're not fighting Goliath. So there are principles that we can glean from Scripture. And I believe we will make some very specific application uh, following our time together. But I want to go through, just start at the beginning and go through this story that the Word of God gives us today. Here, in, in response to the sin, the blatant, unashamed, public sin of Jeroboam in setting up these two altars to these two obviously false gods, uh, God, as he often did, sent a prophet to speak against the sin that was being done. Here we find in the beginning of chapter 13, uh, a very obscure prophet of God. He is so obscure, in fact, that we have no idea who he was. We don't know his name. We don't even know where he was from. We don't know his fam family lineage. We don't know his past prophecies. We don't know his history of speaking out on God's behalf to his people. We know very little about this man. It, it simply says, there came a man of God from Judah. And so here, when we are approaching this passage of Scripture, um, we're going to look very specifically at this, at this man of God, some characteristics about his life, about his interactions with Jeroboam, and about ultimately his end. Uh, notice there in first, verse 1 through verse 3, uh, the first thing that we can recognize about this, this man of God is that he was a very bold man of God. I think that's one thing you can say about all, many of the prophets, if not all of the prophets uh, in the Old Testament, is that they were not ashamed to speak up on behalf of the Lord. Here you have a man coming from Judah, a recently divided kingdom. In fact, a kingdom that was on the brink of war. If you look back in chapter 12, there was a part that I skipped over in chapter 12 where Rehoboam gathered the tribes of Benjamin uh, and Judah and all of the mighty men of war, and he was set to go in war against the ten tribes of Israel. God intervened in that circumstance and said, no, I don't want you to fight against your brethren. This is a plan. This is my doing in separating the kingdom. And so they relented. They did not go to war but there's a very tense relationship between Judah and Israel even till this point. Judah in the southern part and Israel in the north. So here we see this man of God going from his hometown, wherever that may have been, going from Judah, his home country, and going into Israel at the beckoning of God to get in the king's face and to basically tell him, you are absolutely wrong in what you're doing. This is sinful. This is an abomination before God, and God will judge your sin. Notice what he says. He comes, he finds the altar with Jeroboam, and he proclaims a word specifically addressing the altar. And he says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. This is not a very pleasant sermon to hear. Uh, there would not be crowds lined up. Stadiums would not be packed to hear this man of God preach in Jeroboam's face. But nonetheless, I'm sure he had quite an audience there because most people preferred to come to Bethel than to go up to Dan to worship. 
So here they came to Bethel, a massive crowd, I'm sure, there for this feast. And he proclaims this message, and it's a twofold message. One, it's a message of basically the ending of the kingdom um, as uh, Jeroboam knew it, and also an ending of the worship that they had established and set up in Bethel and in Dan. He specifically says, and his, his was a very a visceral, a very detailed proclamation. He said, this altar, altar, uh, there is going to be a king, King Josiah, and upon you, upon this altar, he is going to sacrifice the priests that are offering incense. He's going to sacrifice them, and human bones shall be burned upon you. It's kind of a, a bold statement to make, wouldn't you think? But this man of God did not come by his own volition, by his own thinking. He didn't come to himself one day and say, you know what? That's wrong what they're doing up there. He may not have even known about it. But at the beckoning of God, he comes and brings the word of God to bear in this situation. So here he's prophesying uh, the reign, basically the end of the kingdom as Jeroboam knew it. This, um, the reign of Josiah specifically is the one that he prophesies. Josiah came to power in uh, 640 B.C., nearly 300 years in the future from the time of his prophesying. And to validate uh, that, that uh, prophecy of Josiah coming to reign and to offer these, these high priests upon this altar, he gave a sign as well. In verse number three, he gave a sign the same day. This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart and the ashes shall be poured out. This was a bold man. Uh, it is very, you know, it's, we, we find it very difficult to, to associate and to really uh, understand the thinking uh, of, of kingdoms uh, in, as it was in Bible times. Uh, Jeroboam, as the king, had the authority to do whatever he wanted to do. And he had done that by setting up these altars of worship. He just as easily, and I think he did, and we see this in later verses, make an attempt to seize this man of God after the proclamation that he made. This man of, this, this man of God was in very in, in danger, truthfully speaking. His life could have easily been taken at the king's word. And yet, regardless of the danger that he faced, regardless of the repercussions or the reception of the prophecy that he is giving to the king, he comes before the king and he's very bold, he's very plain, he's very open in the statement that he makes. He says, this kingdom is going to come to an end. Josiah will come at a time when Israel cannot respond and he will tear down this altar. He will offer high priests upon this altar. It'll be defiled. This sign also uh, lent credence to, a sign to, to, that he, to the fact that he was a true prophet of God. Here it was very difficult to, um, to validate this man's validity, to, to his, his truthfulness. How could you say, it's easy to say for me, you know, there's no repercussions if I say 400 years down the road something's going to happen. What repercussions are there on me? Well, there's none because we can't validate whether that's true or not. But in giving this sign, and eventually in verse number five, this sign coming to pass, uh, lent the authority from God himself that this was a true man of God and that his word would definitely come to pass as he had spoken it. So we see, first of all, that this is a very bold man of God. The second thing that we see is that he was a compassionate man of God. Look, look throughout the story. After hearing this 
very abrasive, very in-your-face, contrary to the kingdom, contrary to the worship that they were offering, a message that this man of God delivered, the king has a reaction that I think most of us, if we were in his position, would have as well. Uh, Number one, who are you? And number two, why are you speaking up against my altar? Uh, You have no right to speak up against it. And so here, Jeroboam, in verse number four, when he heard the saying of the man of God, no doubt he was indignant, angered by what he heard. He immediately stretched out his hand from the altar and he said, seize him. No doubt he had special plans for the man of God and it wasn't to take him home to his house. Let's just make that very clear. But the Bible says his hand, when he stretched out against him, it dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. I found this part very interesting. Uh, many of you know, for those of you who don't know, I'm a nurse. And um, there's many things in Scripture when I, when I see something that affects the body medically, or I often wonder what exactly happened. What did God do to this king in response to his reaction to his prophet coming to him and delivering, as was given to the prophet, the message that God had to give to the king? Uh, there's several options, uh, and I, I started looking into this. And I'm like, what, what could cause, you know, what, what could ha- happen here? It could have been a, um, for instance, it could have been a stroke. It could have been a cerebral uh, hemorrhage. It could have been a cerebral uh, occlusion, something that prevented his brain and affected his muscles. It could have been a spasm. It could have been a clot that blocked the arteries going to his arm. We don't know exactly what it was. All I can say is it was miraculous. Imagine pointing, being there and him pointing his hand, seize him. And all of us, when he pointed his hand at the man of God, he had no control of it and it withered. He could not even bring it back into himself. He had no control. You know, there's times where we think we're very, uh, we have the authority, we have the position, we have the power. And it's very interesting to see how many times and how often we are put in our place by the Lord. And we come to recognize that we have uh, very little, if no, authority, humanly speaking. We can't do anything uh, without God. So here he stretches out his hand, and his hand withers. And surprisingly, out of nowhere, we see a drastic change in the king's attitude. And this I find so very uh, humorous. Immediately after this happens... The Bible says right after his hand withers up, he can't draw it back to himself. The Bible says the sign comes to pass that the man of God had proclaimed. The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given, to the word, uh, had given by the word of the Lord. So everything up till this point has happened just as the man of God had said. You have the altar rent, it is torn in two, it is the ashes are poured out, their worship is effectively brought to naught. Uh, and the king is there standing with a hand withered that he has no control over. And all of a sudden, the king says to the man of God, please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. Now, this is an interesting turn of events. Notice, uh, and it's very interesting for a couple things, notice the object of his, uh, of his request. Who is he asking for the restoration of his hand? He's asking the man of God, please entreat the Lord your God for me and pray for me that my hand may be restored. He also, uh, it's very interesting to see what he asked for is the healing of his hand. 
I think there's far more requests that he should have had of the Lord at that particular point than his physical healing. His prayer should have been one of repentance, one of saying, plead with your God that he would have mercy upon me for the disgrace that I have brought upon his name and upon his worship. Pray to your God that he would change my heart and change our actions and that we would get right with him and be restored to him. But his, his prayer was not one for spiritual well-being, it was one for physical well-being. How often do, do our requests center around and revolve around our physical state? Pray for my malady, my headache. Pray for this, pray for that. If we're struggling, and in, in this was specific judgment brought upon the king because of his sin. But instead of praying for something related to his spiritual wellness, which, by the way, need I remind us that sin can cause physical ailments. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, when it comes time for offering or taking part in the Lord's Supper, he says, For the sin of approaching the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner, for this reason many are sick among you and many have died. Sin has an effect on our well-being, our physical well-being, upon our whole being as humans. It's very interesting to see how, many, how, how much our, our nation, our world, our, our secularization, we listen to all the secular voices out there. Do you want to be healthy? Man, you just need to eliminate your stress. It's workplace stress that's doing it. You need to have a good work-life balance. You need to take time with your family and, and get away for a few days. We need to, you know what? We need to go to a 32-hour work week. We don't need to work as much. We need to take more time to ourselves. Look what they're doing in Europe. It's working out very well for them, apparently. So let's do that. Let's reduce our stress. Let's reduce our sickness. Let's reduce our ailments. But when it comes to sin, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear what God has to say about this thing. I, I want to do it my way. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that every sickness is sent by God as a judgment upon sin. That is not what I'm saying at all. But sickness can be a judgment of God upon sin. And in this case, the ailment that the king had was specifically a direct judgment of God upon his sin. But he prays for his physical well-being. He prays for the restoration of his hand. Now, if I were the man of God, and I think there is a very good reason why I was not the man of God, um, God you know, God has placed us, you know, when we've been looking through the, the mystery of providence in our Bible study on, on Wednesdays in the men's meeting. Part of that was recognizing the providence of God and then placing us in history where he has for a specific purpose and for a specific plan. And God is meticulous in that. It is not a mistake that we are living in the times that we are living in. We have been placed here by God for his purpose. But I can guarantee you, I probably would not have had the same reaction as this man of God. And if we see what he did, um, well, let's, let's look at what he did. Let's go to verse number seven, or verse number six, the latter part of verse six. So the man of God entreated the Lord. Notice, no seeming response to the king at all. He doesn't say, of course, king, I will pray for you and look at how good I'm going to be after I pray for you. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before, gone. 
I would not have responded that way. I am far less compassionate uh, than I look, <laughs> apparently, or than this man of God was. I would have two primary, primary responses. The first one was, <laughs> too bad, so sad. Serves you right, king. I mean, here I am. I'm coming from God. Do you realize how far I am from home? Do you realize I have to be away from my family and my friends? I can't fellowship. I've got to come and preach to you because you're sinning against the Lord. Look at how this has inconvenienced me. See, see how self-centered I am? Um, look, at, look at what I am sacrificing here to give you the message of God. Too bad. You should have thought twice before you pointed your hand at me and, and told your guards to seize me. That would have been my first reaction. Um, my second reaction would have been far more sarcastic. Uh, King, just a thought here. Why don't you pray to your golden calf? Surely, surely your calf is a god. Why don't you just offer up a sacrifice to your golden calf and let your golden calf heal you? There's no reason to talk to God about it. Let's talk to your calf. Um, very interesting to note here, um, and by the way, I, I, I would dare say that those are two wrong responses. <laughs> uh, let me just say, and I think it's obvious there, but it's very interesting how that when trouble hits, the king doesn't turn to his calf. He doesn't turn to his high priests. He doesn't turn to all of the, the uh, people that he had established. Who does he turn to? He turns to the one true God. I'm sure many of us have seen instances and circumstances where uh, there have been people who have, have mocked uh, Christianity, who have mocked God, who have mocked faith in God. But yet when trouble hits, who do they go to? They go to someone who knows God. Who they, go, they go to someone many times who is a believer, who is a Christian, and says, I know that you're a man of faith. I know that you're a woman of faith. Please pray for me. That's exactly what the king did. In this instance, he recognized the falsehood of his supposed God that he had set up for the people to worship. And he says, call out to your God. Call out to the Lord, your God, and pray for me. We see that the man of God was very compassionate. And he said, you know what, king? I, I am going to pray for you. And he did. He prayed that his hand would be restored, and immediately it was restored to him. The third thing we notice about the man of God is that not only was he uh, bold and compassionate, but he was priceless. This was not a man of God that was easily bought off. Notice in verse number 7 through verse number 10, the king says to him, he says, man, you're such a great man of God. I'm going to have you come to my house. Come to my house and I will give you a reward. Come, refresh yourself. I'll, I'll, I'll bless you because of what you have done today. But the man of God says, no, I, I can't do that. And he says, in fact, king, if you were to give me half of your house, now keep in mind this is not a, a pauper gone king uh, success story. This was not somebody who was little and unknown in the kingdom. This was the son of Solomon. I don't think I need to remind us all of the riches and the wealth that Solomon possessed. And this man, as the king, as the son of Solomon, was a direct uh, person who he inherited all of the wealth of his father. 
But he says to the king, he says, if you were to give me half of your house, I wouldn't go home with you. And I'll tell you why I would not go home with you, because God has given me clear instructions. Do not stay there. Do not eat bread or drink water in this place, but immediately return it and go back to where you came from and don't go the same way. He says, king, I can't do it. I can't go back with you. He was priceless. Now, the king's offer was, was one that was very interesting. Uh, and I, I think there are, there are some nuances here. He, the king wasn't just saying, you know, surely you've had a long trip. Come and take a nap, and then you can go home. Uh, the, the rest and the offer that the king was making was a very symbolic gesture to him. In other words, man of God, you have just prophesied against me, against the kingdom, against the altar, against the priests, against everything that we are doing here. And if you come home with me, that'll kind of give a, a message to all the people that we're good, we're okay. In fact, it could be viewed as a full retraction of the judgment that he had just pronounced upon the king. Whereas it would appear that the man of God and the king were at odds, which they were, if the man of God were to go home with the king, it could appear that, hey, they're on the same page now. This is a, I don't want, I don't want to make a, a, a contemporary reference, pardon me. Um, this is the, the official pastor of the king, so to speak. This is the one who the king goes to for spiritual advice and counsel. This is the king's, the president's counselor, if you will. They're good. There's no judgment here. There's nothing wrong. God and the king are on good terms. That's what he was really offering to this man of God. He said, come home. He's wanting to gain favor with the man of God and in in, in keeping with that, he thinks that by gaining favor with the man of God, he'll gain favor with the Lord. But the prophet refused. He says, I can't go home with you. There is not a number that you can put on that piece of paper, symbolically speaking, that I will go home with you for. I will not stay here. I will not rest. I will not get rewarded by you for what I have done and, and praying to God for the healing of your hand. I'm going home the exact way that I came or a different way that I came. I can't. King, I, because I, God has clearly commanded me not to. So it's good, right? This is good. Uh, verse number 11, right? Oh, verse number 10. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. End of story. This is awesome. Right? Wrong. I would love for this story to end right here. Here you have an obscure man of God who does the work of God in the way that God had prescribed, and he goes home exactly as God has told him. He did not take any money. He did not rest. He did not eat. He did not drink. He obeyed the word of God to the T, perfectly. I would love for the story to end at verse number 10, but it doesn't. Let's continue. Verse number 11. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. Their father said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. Verse 14. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak, and he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. Round number two. 
He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or nor drink water with you in this place. Almost verbatim to what he told the king. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He says, I can't do this and here's why. God's told me not to. We're still good, right? Verse number 18. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it came to pass as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. It came to about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he settled the donkey for him for the prophet whom he had brought back. Let's stop there for just a second. The fourth thing that we see about this man of God, he started off great, didn't he? He was bold. He had compassion for a man who was vehemently and obstinately against him and against God. And he did not accept a reward. He was priceless. He couldn't be bought off. But the next thing that we see about the man of God is that he was careless. He was careless. Here, the, it's very interesting to note uh, that the two sons of this older prophet went to this ceremony there in Bethel. They saw everything that happened. They saw the words, they heard the words. They saw the, the altar being torn. They saw the king's hand being withered and restored. They saw everything that happened. And they even, get this, they even heard... The man of God, we assume, they even heard the man of God uh, say, I can't go home with you, king, because God told me not to. I'm supposed to go home. I'm not supposed to eat or drink in this place. God has commanded me not to do it. And they come back and they tell their father, an old prophet, the Bible uh, describes him as, everything that had happened. The offering of the, the offering, the incense that Jeroboam was burning, the confrontation, the, the speaking of the man of God, everything that happened, they told him. And I'm sure as they're going through this, the old prophet is just sitting on the edge of his seat, just going, what? I wish I had gone. Now, there's a very interesting reason. Why, why wasn't the old prophet there? There could be a, a couple things. One, he could have been a true old prophet of God and knew that it was wrong in the first place and says, I'm not going to take part in something that I know to be wrong. I think I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt there. Um, the other thing, he, he could have uh, been, and I think a case can be made that this is not the, the scenario, but he could have been too old or too um, uh, house-ridden to get out to the place. And I don't think that's the case because later on we see him immediately after hearing this news getting on a donkey and going after the man of God. But he was not present at this ceremony and he heard about it from his two sons. So at, after hearing all of this, he says, saddle the donkey, and he goes, and he goes after the man of God. And he finds the man of God sitting under an oak, and he says to him, man, come home with me. This is great. You can come home. And he even specifically uses the terms. You can eat bread. You can drink water. Come home with me. 
And the man of God stays true to his word. No, I can't go home with you, and yada, yada, yada. We've, re- we've read through it several times already. I won't belabor the point. I can't because God told me not to. He gave me clear construction, instructions. So initially, he refused. And then this old prophet gets wise, or gets stupid one way or the other. I, um, he says to the man of God, he says, oh, you know what? We're the same, you and me. I'm a man of God just like you are. And when I was at my house, an angel appeared to me by the word of the Lord and told me, I want you to go and get that man of God. And I want you to bring him back to your house. And I want you guys to have a good meal. I want you guys to sit down. I want you to eat. Have, give him some refreshment. It's been a long journey. But that's why I came after you. Obviously, no. But God told me to come and get you so you can come back and, and have dinner with me. But notice what it says. It says that he lied to him. If this was a man of God, he was not a very good one. He was a liar. He lied to him. In fact, he made up this whole story. He didn't alter something. He didn't change the details a little bit. He didn't say, you know what? God told me to come and give you water and give you some food. He could have said that, but that still would have been a lie. This was completely false. And so he ended up bringing him home. I can only speculate as to the motivation of the old prophet. I wonder, why did the old prophet find it so necessary to go out and get this man of God? Why? I I think the first thing I thought was, well, maybe, and I I think this would be a, a valid reason, he was too chicken to speak up to Jeroboam, and when the man of God came from Judah and spoke up against it, he's like, man, I've got to meet this guy. I didn't have the guts to stand after him, but this man of God, um, presumably, and other, other uh, versions state that he was a young man, uh, came up and he goes and he does it exactly. I've got to meet this guy. The, the more likely scenario and the more sinister scenario, uh, more likely this was not an attempt just to meet the man of God or to congratulate him or to say, good job, man, I appreciate what you did. I've been trying to say this to him for months. More likely, he was said, you know, if I can get this man of God in my house, because the king tried to get him to go to his house, and he wouldn't, if I can get this man of God to stay for a little bit, I can probably get some brownie points with the king. And instead of him being the king's counselor, because obviously he's not going to do that, maybe I, because I've got a good relationship with this man of God that prophesied against him, maybe I can get in good with the king. Who knows? Again, this is all speculation, The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he did what he did. But obviously, any sin against God and a sin against a fellow fellow human being and even, uh, as he claimed, a fellow man of God, uh, was not, he did not have good intentions in doing it. So he comes home with him and here they are, the young man or the man of God and the older man of God and I'm sure his two sons were there and they're sitting down and they're eating bread and they're drinking and all of a sudden the word of the Lord comes to the old man and says, you have disobeyed the voice of God. And because you have disobeyed the voice of God, God was clear in saying you are not to stay there, you are not to eat bread or drink water, you're to go home a different way and because you did not obey God, you're not gonna make it home. That's exactly what he tells him. Because you have disobeyed and have not kept the commandment of the word of God, you shall not come to the sepulcher of your fathers. You're not even going to make it to your hometown 
because you have disobeyed God. The man of God got careless. And because of his disobedience to God, because of his carelessness and his direct disobedience to the word of God, he came under judgment. So he was careless. The next thing that we notice, number five, the man of God was defenseless. After he, they finished their meal, the, or I'm sure the young man of God didn't have an appetite at this point. But the old prophet says, here, here's the donkey. You can travel back. And he sends him on his way. And so the, the man of God departs from Bethel. And it came about after he had eaten bread, verse 23, and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now when he, the, the prophet, had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing by it. The lion also was standing by the body. And behold, the men passed by and saw the body thrown down on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. In fact, the very same city where the king was offering incense, Bethel. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. A few things about this, uh, these specific verses I'd like to, to bring out real quick. There's, there's something very uncharacteristic about what happens. Here as this man of God goes back on this donkey, a lion meets him, no doubt, by the uh, ordination of God, meets him on the road and kills him. And there's a very interesting picture that you see there. You often see paintings, um, you know, uh, reading Revelation, you, you read about the lion and the lamb uh, cohabitating. And you see, obviously, paintings where a lion is sitting there and a lamb's just kind of got his legs, you know, across the lion and they're just buddy-buddy. This is kind of a similar scenario. Lions do not kill when they're not hungry. They don't kill just for the fun of it. Very uncharacteristic for lions. Very out of the ordinary for lions. And so here this lion kills the man of God, doesn't attack the donkey. And here you have the man of God lying in the road, the lion standing beside him, and the donkey standing beside the lion. This is an odd picture. And no doubt from the people that saw it and went back and told all the people in Bethel, they're like, no, you've got to be kidding me. That just doesn't happen. That's out of the ordinary. It's uncharacteristic. Well, it, did. it just goes to show the hand of God in judging his prophet for disobedience. Here we see the lion standing by the way, standing there just chilling out. I, I read a, a statement in preparation for today, and a statement by Matthew Henry, and it, it was very poignant, and I, I want to read it to you. He says, this picture, this shows what they must expect who hearken to the great deceiver. They that yield to him as a tempter will be terrified by him as a tormentor. Those whom he now fawns upon, he will afterwards fly upon, and whom he draws into sin, he will try to drive to despair. 
There's another lion that the Bible speaks of, our adversary. The Bible says, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. This man of God, because of his sin, because of his carelessness and not heeding the word of God, came under judgment and was absolutely defenseless against this lion that God brought upon him. Here we find the prophecy, the first of the prophecies coming true. We see the sign uh, being uh, fulfilled there at the altar, according to the word of the man of God. And then we see the prophecy of the old liar, the man of God, who brought the young man of God back. We see his prophecy fulfilled. The other thing I want us to, to notice from this passage is found in verse number 26. He says, Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him. And notice this, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. He doesn't say, according to the word of the Lord, which I spoke to him. He says, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. You know, one of the things that, that I think we need to be reminded of, and it never hurts to be reminded of it, is that when, and especially in considering a new pastor and, and hearing people that even that filled the pulpit from this point or from in the past on, when, when someone comes here and proclaims the word of God, it is not them who is speaking to you. As long as they preach biblically and deliver a message from the word of God, assuming that is the case, it is God who is speaking to us through his word. He said, he heard the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. This man of God became defenseless. The last part, and I think the, the saddest part of this whole entire story, is uh, found in the latter verses. He again tells the sons, he says, saddle the donkey for me, in verse 27, and they saddled it. He went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey. Again, this is very uncharacteristic behavior. He laid his body in his own grave. And notice this. They mourned over him. Say, pardon me. Saying, alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he spoke to the, his son saying, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried, lay my bones beside his bones. For the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. And notice verse three, 33 and verse 34. Here it is. After this event... There's no question that all of the happenings and everything that transpired from the beginning of this story to the end of this story, from the confrontation of the man of God to Jeroboam there at the altar, to his leaving, to his coming back with the old man of God, to his uh, utter demise and destruction and death on the road back to his hometown. No doubt all of this was rehearsed in every home and in almost probably every conversation in the town of Bethel. And it says, after this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way. But again, he made priests of the high places from among the people, 
Why would he have to again make priests? I thought he'd already done that. I'm sure a bunch of the priests, after they heard the prophecy, said, I'm not doing this. I'm backing out. Again, he made priests of the high places from among the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and destroy it from off the face of the earth. You say, what's the worst part about this story? Is that ultimately, in the end, after being faithful to the word of God, after being faithful to the message of God, after doing everything that God had said to do and then disobeying, ultimately this man of God was useless. Useless. In the end, what effect did his preaching have on Jeroboam and the, high, and the high priests. What effect did it have with the surrounding people? Had no effect. Jeroboam did not return from his evil way. And instead, he returned to do exactly what he was doing before. Defying God, defiling his worship, defiling himself and the people by it. In the end, the divine prophecy of the man of God that he delivered to the king was betrayed by his personal conduct and disobedience to God himself. You say, is there any bright spot in this story? Uh, I think there is. The bright spot that we find is the bright spot that we often find in, in all of the passages of Scripture is that God is faithful to his word. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. Often, I, I thought about this while, while studying. You know, it, it's, it's... Would it be realistic or even possible for eventually one day, if there ever was a king named Josiah, to come to power and people come to him and say, you know what? I recall there were a prophecy being spoken about you sometime. Where was that? Bethel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a man of God... 300 years ago that came and he made a prophecy about you becoming king. And he said that you were going to destroy the high places and destroy the altar and you're going to sacrifice the bones of the high priest that were offering incense. Man, that's kind of crazy. Is it possible for them to hear that and say, you know what? Yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to go do it. Yeah, surely it is possible. But is that what happened? No, that's not what happened at all. In 2 Kings 22, we see uh, a young man and I, I'm not, that is a gross understatement when I say a young man coming to power, a, a very young man coming to power. In fact, a, a man that is, uh, well, younger than my daughter Julia, being the king. Wow. Eight years old when he began to reign in, verse, in chapter 22. Fast forward to chapter 23. Josiah does that which is right and good in the sight of God. And in verse 14, as he's going through, he makes an end of all the false worship. He says, we are not worshiping any of these false gods. I don't care who they are. We're going to destroy all of them. And systematically, he, when I say he, I'm, I'm not using that symbolically. He didn't through someone else destroy them. In verse 14, it says, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with human bones. He meant business. Furthermore, verse 15, the altar that was at Bethel, here we are, the altar at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel's sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. 
Then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Asherah. Now when Josiah turned, after doing all of that, he said, I'm done here. He turns around and he sees a memorial. He turned and saw the graves that were there on the mountain, and he said, or, and he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. Apparently he wasn't done. Who proclaimed these things? Then he said, verse 17, what is this monument that I see? You have these altars, you have all these graves, obviously the high priests are here, so they dug them up and they burned them on the altar, just like God had said. What's this monument over here? And they told him, in verse 17, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Guess what? You just fulfilled prophecy. 300 years ago, this man of God came up here and said, you are going to do exactly what you just did. He's the one who prophesied. This, this is where he is buried. In verse number 18, he said, Let him alone, so no one disturbed his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the, bro- the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Ultimately, this, this older prophet was a prophet of God who had come from Samaria. And we see, we see them buried together just as the old prophet wished. The only, the only bright spot in this story is that God will do what he says he will do. When God makes a promise, it doesn't matter whether you think it's going to come to pass or not. It's not dependent upon your specific action to bring about God's promise to pass. When God promises, whether he uses you or uses someone else, God will do what he said he will do. And we see this judgment was ultimately fulfilled. So what can we take from this story? What application can we make that can benefit us? And no, we're not going to start off in saying that we are the man of God that came from Judah. It's not going to happen. There's a few things that that I think, and there's many more ways which we can apply this story to our our hearts and lives. The first one um, is simply this. God has the right to dictate to us, as his people, how we are to conduct our lives. You say, how does God dictate to us how we as his people are to conduct our lives? It's found in his word. How are we to live, Lord? He's given it to us right here. And God, as our creator, as our savior, as our sustainer, has the sole right to tell us exactly what to do and when to do it. God had the right to tell Jeroboam what to do. God had already laid out those plans. In fact, we're reading some of the establishing the foundational literature in Exodus, Exodus 28 today. How his people were to offer worship to him. He had that right. He has that right. Same is true with the man of God. He told the man of God, go and deliver this message and do this and this and this and this and don't do this and do exactly what I tell you. He had the right to tell the man of God. As servants of God and as believers, it is not our responsibility to be successful in a secularized understanding. It is our responsibility to obey God in all that he has told us to do. Period. And may I remind us that God does not change his mind. What did Paul say in Galatians chapter 1? After preaching the gospel to the church at Galatia and founding the church there in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 8. Pardon, uh, yes, 
But even if we, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Folks, God does not change his mind. Over and over and over, we see the promise of God. I am the Lord thy God. I change not. Hebrews reiterates that. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And even Paul said, if we come to you, or an angel comes to you and tells you something different than what we've preached to you, let me The Apostle Paul, let me be accursed because if I'm saying something contrary to what I've told you, it is not the gospel. God does not change his mind. We do not have to worry about waking up one morning and finding an angel standing in our room with some new revelation that we've been wrong all along. No, God has spoken in his word and we are to respond in that way. Secondly, disobedience to the commands of God will not go unpunished. Disobedience to the command of God will not go unpunished. In the end, of course, we see the end of Jeroboam. We see the prophecy even of the end of the kingdom. In, uh, I believe it's 640 B.C., where, where the Assyrians come in and take Israel captive. Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser coming in and captivating the nation of Israel and carrying them off into captivity. God's word comes to pass, and God will judge sin. Again, drawn back to that passage that we read last week uh, concerning the Lord's Supper. Scripture says if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. If we as God's people come before the Lord and assess our lives in light of the clear teaching of Scripture in light of God's Word, and we judged ourselves according to it, guess what? There's no judgment to be had for those who follow the Word of God. Ultimately, we know as believers that there is no way we can perfectly keep every commandment of God down to the letter. And that is the reason why we need a Savior and praise God for the Savior that we have in Christ Jesus. God is ready to forgive our sins when we come to him and repent and confess our sins before him. But often this does not negate the detrimental effects our sin has on our lives and the lives of those around us. Let me remind you, that man of God did not return to his family. Not only did the man of God suffer for his disobedience to God, but his family suffered. I don't know if he was married. I don't know if he had children. I don't know if he had brothers and sisters, his friends, family, all those gathered in his hometown. They suffered as well. We could point to the sin of Achan and see how that Achan saw and he coveted and he took it and he hid his sin. And after that, after all of that, Achan was the only one who made out bad, right? No. Israel went up to Ai, and guess what? 36 men died because of the sin of Achan. Not only that, but his family was killed because of his sin. Your sin will inevitably affect everyone around you. Your sin will affect this church. Your sin will affect your wife and your children and your parents' children. Your sin will affect your family. But God is ready to forgive us. He is ready to restore us. He is ready to cast all of our sins. And as believers, our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But disobedience will not go unpunished. Number three, past faithfulness to God and his word does not justify tweaking the rules a little bit. There are so many stories. I I heard of a man of uh, uh, a pastor 
who pastored in Newington, Connecticut for 30 some odd years. Very well known. He went to New England at a very difficult time and established a church by the grace of God. It came to be one of the largest Baptist churches in New England. They started a seminary. They had a, a local Bible college. They had a massive Christian school. This was a huge church. When I was in uh, Bible college up at uh, New England Baptist College in, in Connecticut, he came and he preached in our uh, chapel service. And he preached a message that, providential, obviously, he preached a message on finishing well. And in that message, over and over he stated, if you live your entire life for God, but yet fall and sin and never return to the Lord, that will destroy your life, destroy your testimony, destroy your family. Don't do it. Don't do it. Phenomenal message. Stuck with me. Stuck with me especially because it came from a man who had established himself and for years, for 30 or more years, had faithfully served the Lord. A year after he preached that sermon, he resigned his church. Disgraced in sin. Folks, we must never get the idea in our mind that we are above sin, that we are above temptation, that we are above the, our own indwelling, sinful, wicked, deceitful nature. None of us are immune. Our past faithfulness to God and his word doesn't justify a little disobedience here and maybe twisting the rules here a little bit. We must obey God until he calls us home. Lastly, there are so many more applications that can be made from this passage, but for sake of time, I'll just touch on one more. I just noticed my watch has stopped. Sorry about that. I've been, man, I've been preaching for 30 minutes and it hasn't moved an inch. Um, lastly, sins towards God and towards others betray the faith that we profess in God. And ultimately, it can render useless, useless, the seemingly meaningless words of our profession and detrimentally affect all those around us. All of us that work in a secular environment, I think that covers all of us here. You know that people are looking at you? That person claims to be a Christian, but you know what? They cuss just like the rest of us. You know, of all the dirty jokes I've heard at work, that Christian was the one who told it. That was the worst. Obviously, his, his God's not real. His faith isn't real. Come to church, repent of my sin. You've got to be joking. Do you see the way that person lives? Growing up in a house with a father or a mother who says one thing and does the exact opposite. And this can come in small forms. Having a, having a fight in the morning yelling at your wife and all the kids to get ready. Hurry up, we're going to be late. Running out the door, you know, um, your, your, your wife doesn't have her hair done, you know, there's, the kids are half-dressed, they don't even have shoes on. And that was just this morning, folks. No, I'm kidding. It's, uh, having that type of an attitude, and then, you know what, guess what? You're called upon to pray, or you have a prayer meeting, and all of a sudden, out go all those words of yelling and, and uh, anger and, and uh, all of those things, and you stand up and offer, try to offer this flowery prayer to God and your kids are looking up at you like, what a hypocrite. This isn't what's real. 
What I saw this morning, that was, that was who he really is, or that's who she really is. Folks, we must never forget that we are setting an example for those around us, for our children, for each other, to provoke one another to love and to good works. And our profession of faith must be in keeping with, the, with the, our actions. The past couple of weeks we've read in Hebrews, the holiness without which none will see God. You can't just say that you're a Christian. You can't just say that you're a servant of God. Christ even said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? God, do you really understand what you're doing here? We've prophesied in your name. We've cast out devils in your name. We've done many wonderful works in your name. We've volunteered in your name. We've clothed the, clothed the homeless and fed the, the poor and done all that. God, you don't realize who you're talking to, but he says, I will profess them. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. My hope and my prayer is that each family here, every single person represented here in this room, will live a life that is consistent with your profession of faith in God. And that we, all of us, not for benefit, not for eventual results, not for success in secular terms, but because God has called us to be faithful, God has called us to be holy, and as his people, we must obey what he has called us to do. Let's pray. Dear Father, oh God, we are, Lord, far more wicked than we would like to confess to this church body. Lord, there, there are sins in our lives, Lord, besetting sins, Lord, indwelling sins, remaining sins of our flesh, Lord, that we have not yet put to death. And God, I pray that you would reveal to us our sin. God, I pray that we would be a bold witness, Lord, compassionate to those we, we speak to about Christ, about our need for salvation and for reconciliation with God. And Father, I pray that our, our words would be in keeping with our actions and that we would be faithful to you. Help us not to be a useless bunch of Christians. I pray that our, our lives as individuals and our church as a, as a unit would have a testimony and impact in our community. Lord, so that we might reach this area for the sake of the gospel. Help us, I pray. We cannot do it without your help. Lord, thank you for being with us today. Help us to be faithful to you. God, I pray that your spirit in a special way would dwell upon this meeting that we are about to embark upon and that you alone would be glorified in what is said and what is done. It's in Christ's name we pray, and for his sake we ask it. Amen.